We turn this morning to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Let me give you in a nutshell what Romans chapter 6 is all about. Romans chapter 6 is all about a doctrine that is not, I believe, popularly taught and not popularly known in many places, and we're referring to the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. What is this doctrine of union with Christ? And the idea of union with Christ is that from God's reckoning, from God's vantage point, everything that happened to our Lord Jesus with respect to his death, his burial, his resurrection, everything our Lord Jesus possesses, even his very life becomes ours as believers in him. Keep that in mind as we go through this portion this morning, the whole idea of union with Christ, that when we became saved, when we became converted, when God declared us righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we were united with the Lord Jesus. We became one with him. We became identified with him in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, and we share his very life. So let's turn this morning to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We'll read these verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Since one is saved, declared righteous by God, apart from works, Romans chapter 3 verse 21, verse 22, verse 28, and since it's true that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Does that then mean that we keep on sinning as professing Christians? Back in chapter 3 and verse 8, there were some who were slanderously alleging that Paul was promoting this heretical idea. In effect, they were accusing Paul of antinomianism, of giving license to ungodliness. And so today, many consider it dangerously unwise to teach the gospel of the free, justifying grace of God apart from one's good works. 
Because as they put it, it makes salvation simply a matter of easy believism, a matter of cheap grace which leads to careless, godless living. But here in his letter to the Romans, Paul, having previously discussed the subject of justification by faith, by grace alone, apart from works, now takes up in Romans chapter 6 the issue of the believer's sanctification. So all of chapters 4 and 5 were devoted to the doctrine of justification, how we become righteous in the eyes of God. Chapter 6 onward is now dealing with sanctification, that is to say, how we actually live righteously before God. Paul intends to show in this chapter the incongruity there is between coming into a saved, justified standing with God by grace and continuing in a life of sin. His point of contention is that being declared righteous by God obliges us to live righteously before God. That the free, saving grace of God is no blank check, is no green light, is no go-ahead to give rain to sin so we can receive greater measure of God's forgiving grace. The truth of the matter is that those who talk or think along these lines clearly betray a lack of understanding of the nature of God's saving grace. I would say that to entertain such erroneous idea that the justifying grace of God is a green light to continue in a life of sin is, in the words of Jude 4, to pervert the grace of our Lord Jesus, to pervert the grace of our God. To hold to such view is to regard freedom in Christ as what Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 as an opportunity for the flesh. The point is, while we are not saved by good works, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, we are saved for the purpose of good works, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And whereas we are justified by faith apart from works, the word of God teaches that that faith is a faith that cleanses the heart. It is a faith that cleanses the heart according to Acts chapter 15 and verse 9. As such, true believers in Christ who have exercised saving faith in him will be careful, according to Titus chapter 3 verse 8, to devote themselves to good works. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3 verse 8, he says this, this is a faithful saying and I want you to affirm this constantly that those who have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. They'll do so understanding that with salvation comes the holy calling of God, the call to holiness, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. And so the bottom line, as one writer puts it, is, quote, the gospel offers not merely an escape from the punishment of sin, but aims to effect a transformation in the character and conduct of the saved. Jesus does not save his people in their sins, but from their sins, end quote. In short, the whole thrust 
of the New Testament as it relates to the practical outworking of the gospel is this, that God's saving, justifying grace towards sinners has in view their sanctification. There is no true justifying grace without sanctified living. And so we read in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. Here's what the Apostle Paul says as he speaks of the saving grace of God. He says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to purify us, to redeem us, to make of himself a people who are zealous of good works. The point is this, my friends, that salvation in Jesus Christ is a salvation that changes individuals. Now, in addressing the claim that those who see the grace of God as a green light for a life of sin, Paul begins with these words in the A part of verse 2. He says this, by no means shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. He says, by no means. Literally in the Greek, may never happen. It's as though Paul is saying, no way, perish the thought. Not at all. It's as though he's saying that the whole idea that continuance in sin is compatible with the saving grace of God is preposterous. And here in verses 3 through 11, Paul presents at least three compelling arguments as to why continuance in sin is out of character for those who have been justified by the saving grace of God. Three compelling reasons as to why it is unthinkable that a person having come to faith in Jesus Christ should continue in a life of sin. Reason number one is this, that an account of the saving, justifying grace of God, a death to sin has been effected. A death to sin has been effected. It is unthinkable, it is preposterous that a true believer in Christ should continue in sin because a death to sin has been effected. The Christian, Paul argued, died to sin. And in light of this reality, he raises a question there in verse 2, how can we who died to sin, still live in it. Paul is saying here, look, if it is true that the believer in Christ is dead to sin, if it is true that he has died to sin, then how in the world, as some would say, how in the world is it possible that he or she should continue in a life of sin? With this rhetorical question, Paul indirectly makes the point that the very idea of continuing in sin is most outrageous. And as a corrective to such misguided thinking, he says there in verse 3, here's what Paul says. He says this, Do you not know that all of us, and he's coming in now with the doctrine of union with Christ, he says this, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. It's as though he's saying, listen, you ought to have known that. 
You should have known that. It is ludicrous, it is preposterous that you should continue in sin. Why? Because the word of God teaches, Paul is saying here, that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now listen, the thing we need to understand here is that Paul is not stating an ideal to which the Christian is to aspire. He is not stating here a goal to which the Christian must strive to attain. Rather, he is declaring a fact. Paul is asserting a fact. He is saying here that when Christ died, and by virtue of our placing faith and trust in Christ, a spiritual transaction, a spiritual operation took place whereby we actually died with Christ. It's not a hypothetical situation. It is not a figure of speech. In the most real way, Paul is saying a death was effected. It was effected through the operation of the Spirit of God. But what does Paul mean here when he says we died to sin? What does he mean when he says we died to sin? Let me say this. He surely does not mean that we are no longer capable of sinning. He doesn't mean that as Christians we no longer battle against sin. We no longer feel the pull of temptation to sin. He doesn't mean that upon our conversion we become deadened. We became deadened that is numb to the tempting pull of sin. We know that that could not be the case. Why? Because here's the truth. The truth is never is one more awakened to the struggles and battles against sin. Never is one more awakened to the reality of the pull of sin, the urge to sin, than when one has come to faith and trust in Christ as Savior. Now, many of us know that from experience. In fact, wait until we come to chapter 7, because Paul is talking there not as an unconverted man. He's talking there as a saved man. He says there, the good I want to do, I find I can't do. He says, every time I will to do what is right, evil is present with me. There's a teaching abroad today known as entire sanctification. The idea is this, that when we come to Christ, it is possible that we can come to the place where we never sin again. That is totally not the case when we look at the word of God. Indeed, Paul, to underscore the point that when we become saved, we are not deadened to sin. We do not become numb to sin. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 5. Verses 16 and 17. And Paul here is addressing not the unconverted. He's addressing believers in Christ. Listen to what he says. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the loss of the flesh. For the Spirit wars against the flesh. And the flesh wars against the Spirit. And these two are contrary the one to the other. So that you cannot do the things you want to do. Do you know of that struggle? Do you know of that struggle? Let me say this. It's real. It is very real. And God's people, believers in Christ, are in no way exempted from the pull of temptation to sin. That's what the Word of God suggests. My friend, there's a real battle which a Christian wages against the allure of sin. 
which clearly indicates that salvation in Jesus Christ does not mean we become deadened and insensitive to sin. The question is, what then does Paul mean in saying that we believers died to sin? What does he mean? And the question also is, when did this death occur? And these answers, notice, are found in verse 3. First of all, that we died to sin is explained by what the Word of God regards as our union or identification with the Lord Jesus in his death. And this union, this identification with our Lord Jesus is referred to in terms, it's expressed in terms of baptism. Paul writes there in verse 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Let me say here right off the bat, The baptism he's talking about here, you see, is not water baptism. It is not water baptism. And why can we say that? We know that because there are many who have been baptized in water who have never been baptized into Jesus Christ. My friends, it's possible that you could be baptized a hundred times over and still be lost, still end up in hell because here's the truth. Baptism never saves anyone. Baptism doesn't wash away sin. If one is not saved and yet is baptized, all that happens is this. One went into the water, a dry sinner, and one came up, what? A wet sinner. That's all. This seems to have been the case with Simon the Magician in the book of Acts chapter 8. Because no sooner had Simon the magician been baptized, Acts chapter 8 and verse 13, than Peter perceived that his heart was not right with God, Acts chapter 8 and verse 21. Such that Peter was able to admonish Simon the magician. Here's what Simon was told by the apostle Peter. This man who had just been baptized, Peter looked at him and he said this, Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, Acts chapter 8, 22, 23. What was happening here? Simon had just gotten baptized. He saw the apostles laying hands on people and the Holy Spirit coming upon them. They were manifesting all kinds of wonderful things. And the Word of God tells us that Simon was so impressed, he went to the apostles, I offered money. He says, give me this power that whomever I lay my hand on, this might also happen to them. What was wrong with this man, Simon? He was worldly. And as Peter told him, you, you think that the gifts of God can be purchased with money? This man was not interested in God. He was interested in spiritual manifestation. There are a lot of people in our world today who have no real interest in God, but they are in, interested in what? Miracles, the sensational healing. But ask them about commitment to the Lord Jesus. Ask them about glorifying God. Ask them about faithfully representing the Lord Jesus Christ in their families, at their workplaces. And it's all null and void. And yet, they love miracles. They talk about the sensational. They talk about speaking in tongues and so on and so forth. 
You see, our baptism into Christ then refers, and here's what this dead to sin actually means, and this baptism into Christ's death really means. Our baptism into Christ refers to that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in uniting us to Christ, in placing us in Christ. We read of this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body. What body? The mystical body of Christ, as we learn from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, 23, chapter 5, verse 30. When did this baptism take place? It took place the very moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Right at that moment when we place faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when God declared us righteous, when God said not guilty, the Holy Spirit of God took us and baptized us, as it were, placed us in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we read then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means this, that the Spirit of God enters our life, the Spirit of God places us in the body of Christ. And here's the point. In that very transaction, everything that is true of the Lord Jesus became true of us believers in him from God's vantage point. Now in verse 3 of our text, we're told that having been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. And Paul is saying here that by virtue of our being baptized into Christ, we became united with him in his death. The idea here, as we said a short while ago, is this, that from God's vantage point, from God's standpoint, by God's reckoning, when Christ died, watch this, when Christ died, we also died with him. Again, that's not make-believe. That's not a hypothetical situation. It is a fact that Paul is asserting. It is a reality. It is not a mere figure of speech. The Word of God is saying that in a real sense, a spiritual sense, we became united, Lord Jesus, so that when our Lord Jesus died, we actually died with him. And the point is, by virtue of our identification with Christ, our union with him in his death, we died to the old life of commitment to sin. In consequence of our baptism into Christ's death, we died to all relations we had with sin. Now here's the point. You see, our sin nature, our Adamic nature, the nature we derive from Adam, because we are descendants of Adam, and we inherited a sin nature of Adam. Here's the point. In view of that, in consequence of that, you and I were obliged to sin. We couldn't help it. That was the most natural thing for us to do. But with the death of Christ and with our positional participation in that death at conversion, all such obligations ceased, the word of God teaches Again, it's not that we do not sin or that we cannot sin. But here's the point. It is that we do not have to sin. 
let me say this. This might sound strange. Do you know that as Christians, there's a real sense in which we do not have to sin? No, watch this. It doesn't mean that we do not sin. It doesn't mean that we cannot sin. It doesn't mean we can never sin. Our union with Christ means that we do not have to sin. Now, let's back this up with some scriptures. The Apostle John, 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I'm writing to you, so that you might not sin. Why would John say that? He says, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. But he goes on to say, John is realistic. He knows that we live in a fallen world. He says this, and if any man should sin, we have an advocate. Every time you and I sin, here's the truth. Every time you and I sin, it is a choice that we have made. It is a choice that we have made. And the point is, the point of Romans chapter 6 is this. Because sin has been broken, the power of sin has been broken at the death of our Lord Jesus. Because in his death, in his resurrection, he triumphed over sin and death. Here's the point. The enslaving hold of sin on us has been broken, has been cancelled. Don't we sing it in our hymnals? He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the captive free. And so when we consider the truth of our union with Christ by virtue of which we died to sin, you see the sense in which we died to sin. We died to sin not in the sense that we became deadened and numb to sin. We died to sin because when Christ died, we actually died with him. We, in that regard, became dead to sin. Why? Because we are baptized into Christ. In being baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. And so the idea then is that we should live in sin is preposterous. Paul says if we, if we have died to sin, how then can we live any longer in it? In answer to the question then as to why continuance in a life of sin is out of character with those who are justified by the saving grace of God, the reason is not only because a death to sin has occurred, the Christian has died to sin, but secondly, because a union with Christ has been established. Not only is it that a death was effected, but that a union with Christ has been established. A union with Christ has been established in that having been baptized into Christ Jesus, the believer was baptized into his death, thus bringing an end to his or her former relations with sin. That's what the Word of God is teaching. Now, in verses 4 through 6, if you'll follow verses 4 through 6, Paul elaborates on this union, which has been effected between Christ and the believer. And in so doing, he states the purpose of the believer's baptism into his death, which is this, that we might live in newness of life. What is the purpose? What was the purpose of our being baptized into his death? Paul says that we might live an entirely brand new life. Here's how he expresses the truth in verses 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. You see the correspondence, union with Christ, the implication. Then he says this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. May I suggest this? If you read those verses and you take those verses to heart, that is why if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should, in obedience to his command, be baptized in water. Because in being baptized with water, what you're doing, my friends, is this. You are symbolically and outwardly attesting to an inward reality. Look at the inward reality. He says that we were buried with him by baptism into death. He's not talking about water baptism there. He's talking about an operation of the Spirit of God, whereby the Spirit of God took us, baptized us, placed us, immersed us in the body of Christ, when we go down in the water, what are we actually doing? We are actually portraying the fact that we what, died with Christ. We go down in the water, we are buried with him, and we rise from the water. We are saying to the world, this was what happened through the operation of the Spirit of God. I have been raised with Christ. I've been resurrected with him to newness of life. That's why you should get baptized Baptism is not an option. What is the idea of baptism in Scripture? Generally, the idea of baptism in Scripture is that of identification. When we are baptized, remember sometime ago we talked about the marriage ring? When we are baptized, we are actually identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are identifying with him in three respects. We are saying we died with him, we were buried with him, and we were raised with him. Here in verses 4 and 5 of Romans 6, Paul is saying that in the same way that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead, the Christian, by virtue of union with him, not only died, but underwent with Christ a burial signaling, signaling what? Signaling an end to the old sinful way of life. And with Christ, the believer rose to a position of life in Christ, which consequently begs the question. You see what Paul is doing all along? He's using this idea of union with Christ to show how preposterous is the idea that one should continue living in sin. He says this, by virtue of our identifying with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, the purpose of which God wants for us to walk in newness of life, it begs the question, Paul is suggesting from verses 4 and 5, how can the believer then go on in sin? The answer to which is a resounding, absolutely not. The justified believer in Christ cannot, in all good conscience, continue to live a life of sin. Why? Because to do so would totally contradict it would totally contradict all that his or her union with Christ implies. Why is it that a true believer in Christ cannot legitimately continue in a life of sin, cannot conscientiously continue in a life of sin? First of all, because a death has been effected. The Christian died to sin. At conversion, God reckoned us in Christ as having died with Christ, as having been buried with Christ, as having been raised with Christ, which then obliges us to walk in newness of life. Second, the truly saved believer cannot 
conscientiously continue a life of sin because a union with Christ has been established. Now in the third place, and this is our final point this morning, the truly saved believer in Christ cannot continue in sin because a relationship of slavery has ended. The true believer in Christ cannot legitimately conscientiously continue in Christ not only because a death to sin has been effected, a union with Christ has been established, but more so because a relationship of slavery has ended. Look at verses 6 through 10. And the central idea, the central idea of these verses is that by virtue of union with Christ, union or identification with Christ, who by his death broke the power of sin, the believer in Christ has been freed from its dominating enslaving hold. Note first of all verse 6. He says this, we know. Stop there for a moment. As many as four times in this chapter... Paul uses the word no. In two of these instances, he raises a question, do you not know? We see that in verses 3 and 16, as if to say, it's a given that they should know. This is something that they should know. They should have known the truth he's discussing. In the other two instances, verses 6 and 9, he says, we know. We know this, that, and the other. You ask, what's the significance of Paul stressing this word no? And it is this, that holy, godly living. This is something we need to catch. Paul keeps using this word, no, we know. And don't you know? Why? Because you see, holy, godly living, to those of us who are saved, our call is predicated, is based on an informed, intelligent awareness of divine truth. There is no spiritual growth apart from knowing God's word. You know, someone once said that knowledge is power. And that's a thousand times even more true when it comes to knowing the word of God. Knowledge is power. You might have also heard the saying, what you don't know won't hurt you. That does not obtain in the spiritual realm when it comes to the Christian faith. Because here's the truth, what we don't know can hurt us. Because here's the truth, we shortchange ourselves by not being informed of the truths of the word of God, particularly such truths as they relate to our salvation in Christ, the way of victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. If we don't know those truths, then we are shortchanging ourselves, we are short-circuiting our growth, and we are going to be stymied spiritually. We're going to stagnate spiritually. Knowledge is key. Knowledge is power in the Christian life. That is why as a church we are committed to teaching the word of God. That is why we're taking a difficult passage like this this morning, a passage which many would consider abstract and impractical. We are opening it up. Why? Because there's power to be derived from understanding, from knowing our union with Christ. It has tremendous implication for Christian living for Victory over sin. Now, among the many vital truths we know as Christians, and we're winding down this morning, among the many vital truths we know as Christians, as those who have been saved by the grace of God, first of all, verse 6, he says this, that our old self was crucified with Christ. 
Once again, Paul is asserting a fact. He is speaking of a real spiritual event which from God's vantage point and which through the operation of the Holy Spirit actually took place irrespective of our feeling it. This has nothing to do with our conscious subjective experience. The word of God teaches, beloved, that in Christ thy virtue of our being united with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, our old self was crucified with Christ. What is that old self? It is that person we used to be. What with all our sinful deeds? It was crucified that is put to death when at the moment of salvation, God reckoned us, regarded us, deemed us as having died with Christ. Let me say this. If God said it happened, it happened. And in stating that our old self was crucified, Paul is saying that in principle, that person no longer exists. Again, he's not denying the reality of sin. Paul is not denying the reality of sin's presence and power in our lives as Christians as we live from day to day in this world. He's not saying that we do not grapple with sin. Rather, he is referring to how God regards us, how God sees us. Let me illustrate to you just as how you see when we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God says not guilty. You're righteous. It's a declaration by God. He deems us as such. We are as righteous as can be. Similarly, God said, when Christ died, here's what happened. You see, by virtue of your faith in him, you died with him. Your old self was crucified. And the old self, verse 6b, was crucified for what purpose? Look at verse 6b. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What does that mean? It doesn't mean disintegrate and go into annihilation. It means, that word means rendered powerless. It's a word that is used in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 where it is said that our Lord Jesus Christ in his death destroyed him who had the power of death. Question is, has Satan been destroyed in the sense in which we would take it on the surface? No. He is still kicking. He is still very much alive. But here's the point. His power has been checked through the cross. His power has been checked through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we fight from a point of victory against him. What is this body of sin? It refers to this physical mortal body. This body you're looking at. This body I'm looking at. It refers to this physical mortal body which is constantly being actuated by sin. This fallen fleshly body in which sin resides. Do you know the Bible says, actually teaches that sin lurks, it resides in the members of our bodies? That is why in verses 13 and 19 he says, he refers to the members are parts of our bodies or various organs or various limbs as instruments of unrighteousness. Let's take this on in practical terms. That is why our eyes Why do we look at the wrong things? Why are we inclined to look the wrong way? Because of the principle of sin in our members, in our eyes. Why do we walk to places we shouldn't go? Because sin lurks, resides in our members. 
Paul will say then, later on in Romans chapter 7, I find the law of sin warring in my members, bringing my mind into captivity, he says. And that's why I was led to cry out, O wretched man that I am. Why? Because of the reality of indwelling sin. The body of sin then is that physical body of ours that we see, we handle, we touch, in which sin resides, which is actuated by the alluring power of sin. That is why Paul will instruct us in verse 12. He says this, as we're going to see next week, he says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body. And though this body of sin is ever opposed to our living, godless, sanctified lives, the word of God teaches, it was rendered powerless when our old self was crucified. Why? Note the C part of verse 6 and on to verse 7. So that, so that God effected a death in which the old man, the old self, this body of sin was crucified along with Christ. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that word set free in the Greek literally is justified. For one who has died has been justified. Watch this now. Has been justified from sin. He uses there what is known as a genitive of separation. And the idea here is this. That when God justified us, when he declared righteous, he did so with a view to removing us from sin. Our relationship to sin in which we are obligated to sin, those days are over, the word of God is saying. Paul continues with this theme of the end of sin's enslaving hold on us. In verses 8 through 11, here's what he says. Now if we have died with Christ, he's wrapping up now and he's bringing everything to a logical conclusion. He says, if we have died with Christ, or better yet, since we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, here again he says, we know knowledge is power. If we don't know all of that, then we are spiritually bankrupt. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves, reckon yourselves, dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, what he's saying is that death put an end to a relationship with our former slave master. As such, all our legal obligations, all our legal obligations to sin terminated at death. He's saying that in as much as Christ's obligation to paying the penalty of sin ended at his death by our being united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, our servitude to sin effectively came to an end. Just as it's unthinkable that Christ should go back to the dead, to the realm of the dead, die all over again, so it is preposterous that we should return to what we used to be, slave to sin, in a condition of death. No, that's preposterous because we're alive in Christ. My friends, the message then is clear this morning. There's no one who professes genuine saving faith in Christ who can conscientiously, who can legitimately continue in a life of sin. That's a central 
thesis of this chapter that where one knowingly, the implication then is this, that where one knowingly and deliberately is living in sin, this can only mean one of two things. Either it is that such person is spiritually immature, ignorant of the teaching of the word of God, not understanding the practical implications of the outworking of the gospel of God's grace, or that person has never, ready for this, that person has never really and truly been regenerated, born again, and is therefore deceived and headed for eternal damnation. In fact, Paul is going to make this absolutely clear by the time he gets to chapter 8. He says, for if you live after the flesh, you will die. He will begin the chapter by saying, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. To continue living in sin is to betray the fact that one is either spiritually immature, ignorant of what the word of God teaches, or has never been saved, has never been regenerated, and hence is deceived and on the way to eternal perdition. It is as simple as that. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Union with Christ, that's the key to transformed Christian living. And we must know that. We must know that at conversion, the Holy Spirit baptized us, identified us with Christ, placed us in the body of Christ so that everything that was true of our Lord Jesus in terms of his death, in terms of his burial, in terms of his resurrection, yes, his very life is true of us. We share his very life. That is why, listen to Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 5 as we close. Colossians 3, 1 to 5. Look at the practical outworking, the practical implication of union with Christ for godly living. Here's what Paul says. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Here's what he says. When Christ who is your life shall appear, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul, what's the practical implication of that? What does it mean for living in the here and now? He says this, mortify, therefore. What does that mean? Put to death, therefore. Put to death, therefore what is earthly in you. And he gives a whole catalog of sins. These are representative sins. He says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil design, covetousness, which is idolatry. It might be this morning that you are, as a genuine believer in Christ, you are struggling with sin. It seems sin is always getting the better of you, no matter how hard you try. Let me say to you this morning, be assured, be reminded be encouraged by this truth that no longer are we under sin's dominion because what Christ did on the cross and by virtue of our being united with him, the back of sin has been broken. You say, how then can I make this good in my life, this idea, this truth practical in my life? It goes to verse 11. He says this, there has to be a mental transaction, a mental reckoning whereby we count on that fact. It's like, here am I being tempted to do this. What must I do in this situation? I need to say, look, 
But who am I in Christ? I've died. We're not talking about positive thinking now. This is what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches this is an actuality. I died. And when we reckon on that fact, and when we look to the fact that Christ had power, he brought the back of sin, he canceled sin power, and I rest in him, I trust in him, then what begins to happen is this, by the grace of God, by the power of his Spirit, sin, the power of sin, the allure of sin, begins to be what? Neutralized. I'm not saying it's some kind of magical formula, of course. There has to be faith and patience and waiting on God, but this is the way to victory over sin. It is recognition of our union with Christ. May God bless these truths to our hearts for his name's sake. If you're not saved this morning, there's every reason why you need to become united with him because this is life eternal, that they might believe in you, that is God, and in Jesus Christ. Your only son. Trust him today. Look to him.